0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the fight against the forces of neoliberalism from the protests by Indian farmers against proposed deregulation to the fight for 15 in the U.S. Clips today are from The Working Life Podcast, Off-Kilter, Pitchfork Economics, Why Is This Happening, Democracy Now!, The Red Nation, and The Zero Hour.
1: I thought I'd arm everyone in the audience with the four, just four, most important things to say to people, to encourage them, to make this fight a priority, or to take on the uninformed with actual information. Number one, keep this thing in mind. If you made $15 an hour and you worked 52 weeks a year, 40 hours a week meaning you had not a single day off to spend with your family or just chill, you would make $31,200. That, my friends, just puts a family of four a tiny bit over the official federal poverty line. And those poverty lines don't really tell us what it costs in real life to survive. Number two, if the federal minimum wage really kept pace with our productivity over the past four decades— The minimum wage should be actually $22 an hour. Yeah, the ruling class and owner class basically robbed millions of people of their hard work over many decades. That's a feature of capitalism, not a bug. Number three, hiking the minimum wage to $15 an hour would save the federal government money. Did you hear that? All you deficit mongers, all the fools, who run around screaming about government spending, except when it comes to denying regular people support, but of course lavishing money on the Pentagon and big corporations. A higher minimum wage will save the government money. How's that, you say? If people make more money, they won't need as much support from federal safety net programs, such as food stamps. And yes, the fact that people talk in a matter-of-fact way That people working full-time have to rely on food stamps to survive in the richest nation in human history should never, never go unremarked with anything but that is fucked up, immoral, and calls for revolution in the streets. People earning more and likely working longer before retirement, I mean, if you earn more, more people will wait longer, actually, to start taking Social Security Well, that will mean more money into the Social Security Trust Fund. And when you earn more, you and your employers pay more in taxes to the federal government. So bottom line, the various savings, thanks to hiking the minimum wage to $15 an hour, would end up saving, saving the government more than $65 billion a year by 2025. And that's according to a very reputable study from the Institute for Research on Labor and Employment at the University of California at Berkeley. You can look it up. And this is the last one, number four. Raising the minimum wage does not, does not, and this is exhausting because we've had to argue this for years. It does not cause big job losses or even much of any job loss at all. And actually, it might even help create jobs. Every credible study, going back 30 years shows almost no negative effect to raising the minimum wage. Oh, yeah, sure. You'll hear about all those fast food joints who won't be able to afford a $15 an hour minimum wage. It's nonsense. Even if these places would have to raise prices a tiny bit to cover higher wages, it would be pennies on a hamburger or a slice of pizza nothing people would stop going to their favorite joint to eat because of the price. And this should be logical to any normal person. Those millions of people who start earning $15 an hour will all of a sudden have a little extra cash to spend, which will likely mean a boost in jobs overall, or at least it would even out any potential small losses.
2: Last time the federal minimum wage was raised was July of of 2009. And um, since then, there's been some good things that have happened. And then obviously, um, a lot of bad stuff that's happened, you know, at the federal level, every year, you don't change the minimum wage, inflation just eats away at its value, right? So um, a minimum wage earner, uh, back in 2009, they're, their minimum wage paycheck bought a lot more than it does today. We've run some numbers on this. and Since then, the value of the federal minimum wage has declined by about 17%. Um, but that actually pales in comparison to the decline in the value of the federal minimum wage over the last 50 plus years. Even when we raised it in 2009, we were raising it to a level that after you adjust for inflation, it was significantly lower than the federal minimum wage was at uh, back in the 1960s. In the, at its high point in the late 1960s, the federal minimum wage was worth the equivalent of about $10.50 per hour in today's dollars. So, what that means is that a low wage worker a minimum wage worker in today's economy is being paid a paycheck that's worth more than 30% less than someone in that same position a generation ago which is just outrageous um so that's you know that's the bad news the the good thing that's happened over the last 12 years is that a lot of states and cities have decided to step up in light of federal inaction. We've had a lot of states that have passed higher minimum wages. I think there's seven now that have pa- passed $15 minimum wages. Not all of them are there yet. They're on their way there. Um, but that's a significant, uh, you know, chunk of states and a significant portion of the labor force that's already going to be protected by $15 minimum wages over the next few years. I think it's about 40% of the workforces in states that are on their way to 15. So, you know, good action happening at the state and local level. But of course, that still leaves 60% of the workforce in places that are not going to 15. And that's why we really need to raise that federal minimum wage so that those workers aren't left behind uh, in the coming years.
3: Hearing you talk about the impact of inflation, right? Uh, The the villain here, it sounds like it's inflation. The villain is actually uh, the, the obstruction in Congress that has prevented the minimum wage from being increased at the federal level that has allowed inflation to to eat it up but just to put um, kind of a fine point on it one of the, the the statistics to me that really helps to capture the cumulative damage that's been done because of federal inaction um, over the course of these these tw- almost 12 years um, it, it actually comes from a, a former colleague of mine a good friend I want to give a shout out to who's done a lot of work on the minimum wage over the years as well Rachel West who's a former uh, economist at the Center for American Progress and now uh, actually over in the working over in the House for Bobby Scott, uh, who I just mentioned on these issues as a, as a House staffer. She crunched the numbers um, just a couple of years ago uh, looking at what has been the cumulative earnings loss. How much have minimum wage workers lost in pay uh, since 2010 because of Congress's failure to act and and she found that um, it, they've lost over a year's pay to inflation during that period more than fifteen thousand dollars cumulatively so just to, to process we're, we're talking about for someone making seven dollars and25 cents an hour to have lost an entire year's pay over the course of the past 11 12 years that's what we're talking about here when 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 you describe the impact of inflation on workers' wages.
2: Yeah that that's right. I mean it's we did similar estimates uh and we found that you know these workers are are losing $3000 a year less than they would have made uh you know since the minimum wage was raised. So this is a huge loss in their buying power. It makes it harder for low wage workers to go out and buy the things they need. It forces a lot of them to have to turn to public assistance programs more than they would need otherwise. Um and the other thing that's that's really important to note about this particularly in the historical context is that by letting the minimum wage fall, this has also contributed a lot to the growth in inequality over the last 50 years, low wage workers, minimum wage workers, um, are significantly farther away from the middle class than they were in the previous generation. You know, a lot of times we hear, uh, you know, folks talking about how the minimum wage is just, you know, teens entering into their first job. And, and we know that's not true, although, and we could talk about that, but even if it were, uh, a minimum wage worker back in the 1960s was paid a little more than half of what a typical middle class worker in the country was paid, um, you know, economists measure this by looking at what's called the median wage in the country, which you know just means if you lined up every worker in the country uh, based upon the, their hourly wage and picked the person who is exactly in the middle, what is that person making? Well, back in the 1960s, a minimum wage worker made about half what that person made. Today, a minimum wage worker at the federal minimum wage makes less than a third of what that person is making. So we've had this huge decline uh, in the value of those earnings of, person, of a person who's in the lowest paid position, whether they are starting out in their first job or whether they've been in that job for a decade because they haven't been able to find a higher paying one, they are much further away from the middle class uh, than workers in the previous generation. And that's something that we need to fix. Fortunately, the new the Raise the Wage Act that was just introduced will do this, and, and I can talk about how uh, it aims to do that.
3: Well, and, and I, I want to also uh, pull a little bit on the thread of, of public assistance because that's, that's such an important part of the picture here as well you 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 alluded to it but talk a little bit about some of the research that helps to put numbers to the the dramatic share of people who are paid low wages and therefore forced to turn to public supports like Medicaid like SNAP formerly called food stamps because they aren't paid enough at work
2: yeah there's a, there are you know, millions of low-wage workers who have to rely on these programs to supplement their income because they're not being paid enough on the job. Um, there was a report that came out just just recently, just in the last week, that looked at public assistance utilization among workers in states that that aren't going to $15. And I, I think the headline number was that basically these workers are getting about $107 uh, billion dollars each year um, in public assistance dollars because they're paying paid wages that are so low. And so, you know, it's unfortunate because we want these workers to be given all the you know all the income that they need. Um we would hope, however, that most of that income would be coming through their time on the job because a lot of them are working full-time or close to it. Um, they're just simply not being paid enough. Many of them are working multiple jobs. Um, and so, you know, unless we set standards that allow them to actually have a decent life through their labor earnings, they're going to have to turn to these assistance programs that are, you know, that are financed by taxpayers. And, and, um, you know, those are dollars that are important and that, you know, those workers need to have. And, and if anything, the benefits in a lot of those programs are, are not generous enough. We should expand them. Um, but if we raise the minimum wage, it would generate a lot of savings in those programs that we could then. Take and, and put right back into those programs or other public assistance programs to make them more generous or to expand eligibility so that more people can f- benefit from those programs. I mean, there's so many needs that we have, uh, for public dollars right now. Um, certainly if we could provide some savings by raising the minimum wage, that would be a useful thing to do, um, you know, for the federal government.
4: And the, the CBO also warned that there would be an increase to the deficit uh, if the minimum wage were increased. And that one seems especially iffy to me because it's based on the idea that minimum wage will kill jobs, which, again, most studies have shown not to be true. And so it seems to me to be built on a faulty premise.
5: Right. 80% of that increase in the deficit that the CBO forecasts is based on rising costs for unemployment and Medicaid due to their job loss forecast. But uh, more so, there's a, a contradictory study out of UC Berkeley that says that the federal deficit will actually decrease by $65 billion a year due to increased payroll taxes and reduced costs from social
4: services. That makes sense because if 27 million more Americans are making more money, then we're going to stop subsidizing bad employers through taxpayer money spending on social safety net programs.
5: Yeah, absolutely. You can you can think of a $7.25 an hour federal minimum wage as a subsidy to low wage employers.
4: Mm-hmm. And this would take that away. So just to just to be clear, I also wanted to point out that that the the CBO's findings don't really reflect any of the recent research that we've seen on the minimum wage either. Correct? I mean, we've seen, um, especially over the last couple of months, there've been a whole slew of studies uh, right. showing showing how the minimum wage has has uh, not killed jobs, created jobs, uh, has lifted people out of poverty, uh, and those those studies don't bear any relationship. To the CBO, right?
5: Well, they do in the sense that, that CBO has ignored them. <laughs> 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 I, I, I mean, let's let's understand. This is how this all feeds together back into each other. These empirical studies of past minimum wage uh, hikes—that's allegedly the data that CBO should be plugging into their models, right? So mm-hmm. when we're talking about these studies where they're using the mean instead of the median, it's of Uh, past studies. They're not using current ones, which are even more positive uh, than some of the past ones. But so it feeds in on itself. If you find, if these empirical studies find more job losses, then future forecasts from CBO should project even more job losses. If they find fewer job losses, uh, then you would expect CBO to projecting fewer job losses in subsequent reports. Weirdly, that's not what's happened. CBO has been getting worse and worse in terms of their job loss forecasts uh, since 2014, um, which, again, runs counter to what you just said. The more studies that come out, uh, the less of an employment effect, positive or negative, we see. It's somewhere around zero. There seems to be very little effect on employment from hikes in the minimum wage. None of this gets to why that's the case, why why that confounds orthodox economic theory. I mean, there's, there's a bunch of reasons, one of which theory could be wrong, <laughs> but it just speaks to the reality. So just it's a little weird that they've gone in this direction. They're going in the opposite direction of the consensus of economists.
4: So, Goldie, uh, let's say that my worst nightmare were to come true and you were to somehow be elected president of the United States. And your aide brings you CBO and says, we have 100% proof that the CBO report is true. It is accurate. It is exactly what's going to happen. Do you still pass a $15 minimum wage?
5: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, In a heartbeat. I mean, if you take everything they project at face value, it's a net positive. It is, the, it's a cost benefit analysis that is a win for, for workers. 27 million people see their uh, wages increase, some of them by a lot. The net increase in income across low wage workers is large, substantial. It lifts nearly a million people out of poverty. And all of these people who are earning more money will now be spending that back into the economy, which is a second level effect that this study doesn't actually analyze. So if you're just looking at it straight up cost benefit analysis,
4: even these numbers, they're good. They say do the minimum wage. So one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this number is that we've been talking about the RAND report for a long time here on this podcast uh, and the transfer of trillions of dollars uh, from the paychecks of American workers to the super wealthy. And one of the things that I noticed about the CBO report is it said that the net pay going to U.S. workers would grow by $333 billion. So that's that's a third of a trillion dollars right there, which is pretty good. It's, it's clawing a, a significant portion of that back to American workers.
5: Right. So we, we talk about this $2.5 trillion transfer of income and wealth annually from the bottom 90% of workers to uh, the top 1%, mostly the top 0.1%. So you're talking about that $330 billion out of $2.5 trillion, it's not nothing. And that three hundred and thirty three billion number, that's assuming the CBO is correct about its job losses. If it's wrong, we're talking at over half a trillion dollars back
4: into the pockets of working Americans. And it's directed towards the bottom of the, the wage right. scale, which is the people who inarguably need it the most. Absolutely.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by The New Yorker magazine, which has been a permanent part of my media diet for as long as I can remember, even before I could read. I always enjoyed gazing at those iconic covers of the magazines that were delivered to our home every week. Eventually, I worked my way up to the cartoons, and now I am proud to say I even read the articles, which is, I'm sure, you'll appreciate about them. It's not an accident that The New Yorker is considered by many to be one of the most influential publications in the world. They've earned it with their quality writing and compelling reporting and storytelling. In both print and online digital issues, The New Yorker has content from the best writers in America today, and there's something for everyone, like politics and news, which you may be particularly interested in, and a bunch of other things that claim to be separate from politics and news, but actually are anyway, like international affairs, climate change, the environment popular culture, the arts, fiction, food, humor, and cartoons, all of which are actually political. A subscription includes home delivery of the print edition each week and unlimited access to the New Yorker website. For a limited time, you can get 12 weeks of the New Yorker for just $6. That's a savings of 50%, plus listeners from my show will receive an exclusive tote bag for free. Go to newyorker.com slash best. That's N-E-W- Y-O-R-K-E-R dot slash best to get 12 weeks of The New Yorker for just $6 and a free tote bag. newyorkercom dot slash best.
3: I want to, at this point, get into what the Raise the Wage Act would do.
2: Sure. So the way the, the bill is structured is um, it would raise the federal minimum wage to $15 in five steps. So what would happen is later in 2021, the federal minimum wage would be raised from its current value of $7.25 per hour up to $9.50 per hour then in 2022, it would go up to $11 an hour. 2023, it would go to $12.50. 2024, up to $14. And then finally, in 2025, it would reach $15 an hour. In years after that, it would be indexed, meaning it would be automatically adjusted each year based upon changes in median wages. And I can say a little bit about that in a second. But basically, it's, it's raised up in this gradual approach. And the reason why we do the reason why it's structured to do that is because, you know, everyone er understands that a lot of workers, really all workers throughout the country today could use $15 an hour right now. But raising the minimum wage does uh, force businesses to make some adjustments, and so by gradually phasing in the increases, it gives businesses time to make those adjustments, so that um, you know they're able to do so without harming their business models and allowing you know workers to continue to to stay on the job. I, I mentioned you know the indexing to median wages, and this is something that I think is really important. I, I mentioned earlier that you know there's been this huge growth in inequality between low wage workers and middle wage workers, and by indexing the minimum wage to to median wages, as this bill would do, what that would essentially say is that each year, however much that median wage went up, well, the minimum wage would be adjusted by the same percentage. And what that would do is keep the distance between middle-wage workers and low-wage workers the same going forward, so we never have this huge growth in inequality between low-wage folks and middle-wage workers anymore. On the tip minimum wage, what the bill would do is gradually raise the Current federal tip minimum wage of $2.13 per hour, which, as you mentioned, was, hasn't been raised since 1991. It's really just an outrageously low uh, wage standard for folks who receive tip. The notions that they can be paid $2.13 per hour uh, provided they get tips is is just unbelievable to me. But what it would do is it would raise that value over the next um, six years, seven years, excuse me, until eventually it's equal to the regular minimum wage. And at that point, uh, tipped workers would be paid the same minimum wage as everyone else. It wouldn't matter what, what tips they received. Everyone would get minimum wage. And if tipped workers got tips on top of that, even better. Um, the bill would also do away with, uh, the lower sub-minimum wage for youth workers. So people who are under, uh, 20 years old. And then the other piece that you mentioned is this special exemption, uh, for workers with disabilities. Right now in, under the Fair Labor Standards Act, you know, workers that have a disability can be paid significantly less than, uh, the federal minimum wage. And this bill would finally do away with that. So that again, regardless of who you are, regardless of whether you receive tips, regardless of your age, regardless of any disability, everyone would be subject to the same minimum wage, um, which I think is, you know, long overdue.
3: And just a, a quick addition on the the, um, the disabled uh, worker subminimum wage that has been in force for for, for as long as we've had uh, minimum wage law and, and yet has been sort of allowed to kind of continue to exist on the books. This is a, a vestige of a, a prior era when there was a, a, the impression, the, the, the belief that somehow this would be good for veterans, right, to, to give them lower wages yeah. because it would a, a allow more of them to be hired um if they were a hard to hire workforce we're we're now at a place where what that has become is not just a loophole in in wage law that has allowed people to be paid pennies an hour for their labor i want to be clear we're not even talking about dollars in some cases some of these workers literally have been paid pennies an hour for their work just because they are disabled but it has also allowed a, a sheltered workshop um kind of industrial complex to flourish that that, that is incredibly abusive and can be harmful um, in, in a, a number of other ways, in addition to low wages to workers with disabilities. So huge, huge consequences here for, for phasing out um, that, that archaic loophole that, that is called 14C for, for folks in the, in the, the, the disability space. Um, Dave, talk about the benefits of the law. So if, if that's what it will do, if those are kind of the main features and a little bit of how it works, uh, the economists at EPI have crunched the numbers, you guys always do, and, and you, you've updated a lot of this for, the, uh, for this particular moment as the bill now has been reintroduced and, and has incredible new legs uh, given, given um, what happened in, in November's election. Um, talk about the benefits of the law um, and, and some of the kind of key facts and figures that help us understand how many people would benefit and, and by how much. Sure. So we
2: estimate that if you were to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 by 2025, as, as this bill would do, uh, approximately 32 million workers throughout the United States would get a raise. And that's about 21%. So about one fifth of the U.S. workforce would benefit from this bill. Um, we estimate that those workers would, uh, would receive basically $107 billion in additional wages by the time the bill is finally phased in. And on a per person basis, that that equals essentially $3,300 per year in an additional annual earnings uh, once we get all the way up to $15. That is a huge increase uh, in earnings for a lot of these folks who are only making, you know, $25,000 a year or less. I mean, at the current federal minimum wage, someone might only be making $18,000, $19,000 a year. So to have an additional $3,300, that's really going to help a lot of folks. As I mentioned earlier, the When you look at the portrait of the folks that would benefit from this policy, a majority of the people that would benefit are women, disproportionately workers of color. Um, you know, about a quarter are parents, so people who really rely on this income. And you know, by providing that additional $107 billion in higher wages, that's also uh, that can also benefit the economy more broadly. You know, low wage workers tend to come from low income households. Uh, in fact, we know that if this bill were passed, uh, about sixty percent of all people who are working who are currently in poverty would get a raise. And those are households that that tend to go out and spend every additional dollar that they receive because they have to just to pay the bills. So if you're giving income to folks who are going to go out and spend it right away, that's going to help stimulate the economy. And I think that's really important when we think about uh, how we're going to recover from the pandemic. Because right now we know the economy is, is struggling overall. A lot of people are struggling and a lot of businesses are struggling. And one of the best things we can do to help them recover is to make sure that there's a strong consumer base waiting for them as soon as the pandemic is under control. And raising the minimum wage is one way to make sure that we do that. Um, you know, as I said, this, this is a bill that's going to help to narrow, uh, racial pay gaps among black and white workers. Um, and, and talked about it. it's a bill that's going to really help a lot of essential workers, folks who have been struggling and asked to take on a lot of additional risk over the last few years, over the last year. Um, and, and finally, this bill will give them some additional compensation.
6: We don't
0: technically have a formal activism segment for today because Amanda is nearly breaking under the weight of interacting with the American healthcare system lately. However, she knew you'd be informed and angry and would want to know that there is something you can do. The fight for a $15 federal minimum wage is happening right now in the Senate as part of the next COVID-19 relief package. Senator Bernie Sanders, the Senate Budget Committee chairman, is leading the charge, but the threat is coming from within. Conservative Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia says he does not support this essential gradual pay raise for workers, even during a pandemic and economic recession. The Fight for 15 campaign is asking everyone to call their senators and demand they support and put pressure on Manchin to pass what would be the first increase in the federal minimum wage in 12 years. It's worth noting that this is the longest we've ever gone without an increase, and we're already fighting for less than what it should be when just for inflation. So call the Senate switchboard at 888-639-5155 and demand your senators raise the wage for workers nationwide. You can follow Fight for 15 at Fight415 on Twitter to stay engaged.
7: Do you see the breeze blowing? Can you feel the winds have changed? Do you smell the scent of roses or does rotten air remain? Do you feel the time has come when we rectify what's wrong, putting all where it belongs as we stand up and be strong? Because it's time to make a difference in this fickle world of change.
6: What is the source of the protest?
8: Well, the farmers are protesting about the fact that here is a leader who has, in a way, like all ordinances that he has passed in the Indian parliament without taking into consideration the opinions of stakeholders, he has brought in an ordinance which basically corporatizes Indian farming. And Indian farming, as it is in a dire position, there are farmers who commit suicide in thousands every year. Uh, by bringing in these three farm laws, Modi has made sure that these Crony capitalist who, as it is, have been benefiting from Modi's largest ever since he has come to power. So there is this uh, there's this term that we coined for Modi. It's called corporate Hindutva. So he plays Hindutva with corporates, right? right. So it's uh, it's a it's a combination that he's been repeating since his Gujarat days when he was a provincial minister, when he was when Muslims were killed in his backyard while he was the chief minister, and then he would bring about this big business houses in Gujarat. So this corporate Hindutva is at play again in the national capital. And farmers, um, this time though, you know, Indians have actually, uh, you know, been very, uh, you know, they have been very meek in the response in the earlier ordinances, whether it was Kashmir, whether it was the citizenship, citizenship bill. This time, there's a rebellion. This time, it's about their livelihood. This and farmers are, are about one third of India's population. It's a rural economy. You cannot just look away from the fact that you're snatching their livelihood and giving it over to corporates. And because Mr. Modi has such a massive ego, he he stood on the floor of the parliament yesterday and went on to call the farmers and the activists in as many words, parasites. Uh, That's what he's called them. So. That's yeah, that's this arrogance.
6: Okay, so the the corporate hindutva is interesting because obviously there's a you know a very strong corollary here in the US, right? We have wings of the Republican government that sort of work this way in which there's this kind of nationalist sort of you know red meat to the base, but then these kind of corporate policies in terms of what they're doing. So Trump gets elected and immediately he cuts taxes, you know, for big corporations. But what just specifically, like, what is the, I know, I don't, you don't have to get too technical, but like, I've had a hard time getting my head around, like, what this, is it that it would lead to more farm concentration? It would allow big farm agri-concerns to buy out smaller farmers? Is that what the issue is with the laws?
8: So earlier, if the farmers could not sell their produce, now we are a country which is dependent on the monsoons, especially because we are most of the crops are monsoon crops, the rains. So if there is no rain, there are droughts. And if the, or for that matter, if there's a surplus, but and if farmers are unable to sell their produce, then you can have a, a third party which can basically come and sell it as a subsidized trade, and uh, you know buy them at a at a minimal rate which the farmers set, set, saying, okay, this has not been bought. Can we can we kind of set a bench? Say we will are we are ready to sell it at at an average rate. What Mr. Modi has done is he has brought big business houses. He has removed those middlemen. So either farmers go to those corporates and sell them at their rates or just get out of the business. So it's basically initializing and getting in the crony capitalists and replacing the middlemen uh, from from the entire nexus. Now, they are saying it's a great thing. We're removing the middlemen. But agrarian politics does not work like that.
6: So what what you're describing is sort of a system of, um, I mean, every country in the world has some sort of farm support regulation precisely because of the fact that agriculture is so weather dependent. It can be so boom and bust. You know, when everybody has a good year, then you flood the market and then you can push the prices down, right? So there there's been recognition across the world that there are ways in which agricultural markets function different than like widget markets, right? So what right. you're saying is… There was essentially a kind of price support, a floor, that there were some third-party purchasers that would guarantee a certain price. To farmers, right. so they knew they right. could bank on that price, and that Modi wants to take away that that floor.
8: Absolutely, absolutely. More than that, more than that. You have taken this decision without consulting the farmer bodies or without consulting leaders of various farmers groups, because you believe that you have certain economists, agriculturists, agriculturists who are sitting on your panels who can decide in the within the four walls what the farmer in the village has to deal with
6: on a daily basis. Right. So you've got, so, so, so this is something that I've gleaned from the coverage I've read, which is that there's a, there's a substantive objection to the policy and then there's a process objection to the way Modi did it.
8: Absolutely. But the
6: substance is, this is sort of a classic, it reads to me like a kind of classic 1990s IMF neoliberal reform, right? Right. That that we have to take away certain kind of subsidies. We have to make it more free market in the farming sector. So yes. there's that part of it. But then there's the right. sort of imperiousness with which Modi just sort of, who has done this on a bunch of stuff, kind of, he's he's quite popular. He has big parliamentary majorities. He says, this is how it will be.
8: Right. And we've
6: come up with this policy and you guys now have to deal with it. And people have rebelled right. against
8: that. Absolutely. Absolutely. He, it, and under the garb of liberalizing the Indian economy, right. you're doing this. But, but unfortunately, the, one of the reasons why... This protest and this revolution, so to say, is so successful because, because most of the parliamentarians in the Indian parliament uh, represent, uh, represent villages, represent farmers' interests, represent regions that, are, that have farmers as their wood banks, right? right? So many of them actually are forced to take up a stand for farmers in the Indian parliament, Because, hey, you cannot, I mean, for the first time, you have something like this getting a massive support. Unlike in previous times, when you have the citizenship protest, when Modi was only attacking Muslims. Now, the Indian parliamentarian would say, hey, I mean, what are our stakes? Muslims are just about 10% of the population. There are hardly many Muslim voters. So why do we care? But in this case, you have to care because that's a huge, that's a huge section of the vote bank of every parliamentarian. And that's, An interest you cannot look away from, but away from away from World Bank politics. This is this is a fight for dignity of the farmers. This is you are telling them that we will set the rules for you without taking into consideration your own opinion. And here is a man who said, oh, in this country, there are only two people who matter, the farmers and the the army men on the border. So, clearly, it's all about, you know, this, this nationalism vis-à-vis farmers and army men. Uh, it's not something that you really are, you know, it's not repeating itself on the ground.
9: P. Sainath, could you uh, talk about this protest, these protests In the wider economic context in India, uh, unemployment is now at 27 percent, which is unprecedented uh, in the country. As we mentioned uh, earlier, almost 60 percent of India's 1.3 billion people rely on agriculture as their main source of livelihood Uh, In just two years, from 2018 to 2019, uh, over 20,000 farmers died by suicide. Meanwhile, a billionaire, the richest man in India, Mukesh Ambani, has made $12 million an hour since the lockdown uh, began as a result of the pandemic in March. Could you talk about the broader context of these protests?
7: Well, the entire entire protests driven by... A deepening agrarian crisis, are very fundamentally tied to the larger structural inequalities that you are pointing to. In just four months of the pandemic, just up to July, not only Mr. Ambani, but the entire bunch of Indian billionaires, dollar billionaires, there's about 120 of them, added 35 percent to their wealth, one third to that already Considerable wealth, and it's now around 485 billion dollars cumulatively. Mr. Ambani went from being the ninth, the richest Indian, and the 19th richest person in the world. In the last year, year and a half, he's made it down to made it up to rank number four. At the same time, Amy, there are new papers, studies showing us. Seventy-six percent of the rural population—that is, three-fourths of the rural population—cannot afford a nutritious meal. They cannot afford a basic nutritious diet, even if they spend, even if they spend two-thirds of their income on food. Now, if apart from that. Even if, say, all rural Indians spent 100% of their income on food and nothing else, no transport, health, education, rent, they didn't spend anything of that, it would still mean 63.3% cannot afford a nutritious diet if they spent every last paisa they earned, I mean, they got as income. So you're seeing these unbelievable gaps. Phenomenal gaps. India ranks fourth or fifth in the list of dollar billionaires in the world and 129th on the UN Human Development Index. So the and the pandemic has provided you need to understand one very important thing about the protests. And for that, you need to understand what kind of mischief was played in the laws. Three major laws have been passed in Parliament which devastate the farmers, and you mentioned them as you introduced the subject. Two days later, when the opposition walked out in protest, they rammed through four labor laws codifying 29 existing complex legislations and made them into four and rammed it through. Now, the question is, why did they feel the need to pass these laws at the height of the pandemic? Mr. Modi had a majority before the pandemic, he, had a, he has a big majority, he will have it for two, three years after the pandemic. The reasoning was, these blokes are on their knees now. They can't organize, they can't hit back. And in fact, many leading neoliberal intellectuals, economists and journalists, editors, incited the government saying, never waste a good crisis paraphrasing Winston Churchill, by the way, badly, never waste a good crisis. This is India's second 1991 moment when we embrace the world of neoliberalism. This is the time to ramp through aggressive next generation reforms. And the government, believing that, went for this action, not understanding the resolve of these farmers who have come back massively at the government. Just one clause I want to read you from the laws, you will not believe… I, do, I don't know, you can tell me if you've ever read laws in a democratic nation which have a clause like this. Not only have they ramped through these laws, you know, on on prices, on contract farming, on essential commodities, they have included this clause in one of the most important of these laws. It says, no suit, no prosecution, or other legal proceedings shall lie against the central government or the state government or or any other person or any officer of the central government or any officer of the state government or any other person in respect of anything. Read corporations. I mean, read corporations in brackets, or any other person in respect of anything which is done in good faith or intended to be done in good faith under this act, and no civil court shall have jurisdictions to to entertain any suit or proceedings in respect of any matter connected to this, to the actions under this law. Have you read many laws like that in a democratic country? So they have taken away the legal recourse of the citizen. And I've been yelling at this, that it's not just the farmers who are affected. Nobody else can sue either. They are dismantling the right to legal recourse. The Bar Council of Delhi, you know, capital city, the Bar Council of Delhi yesterday wrote to the president of India saying this is an extremely dangerous thing that's happening. You're taking away the fundamental rights of the citizen to move the courts when in distress. So this this is the kind of stuff. And at the same time, the inequalities are deepening. The unemployment figures that Amy, I mean they have come down as some amount of opening up happens. But people are returning to much worse conditions as workers. We have tampered with the gold standard of labor law, which used to be eight hours a day. Now, you can have 12 hours a day without overtime for the last four hours, it'll be at a pro-rate, I think. You are having a massive, massive class divide in what's happening with the top 0.01% adding phenomenally to its wealth and a huge amount of distress at the bottom end.
10: Is one of the largest uprisings in the world, uh, certainly in, in the country, and has sustained itself um, in this immediate context, right, for uh, just the, through the winter months, um, and people are camped out surrounding the borders of New Delhi, the capital of India, in resistance to three farm bills. And I think what's important, if I was to summarize uh, some takeaways, the first is that, you know, these farm bills in the immediate, what they do is increase private control of the farming sector. Um, and you know, there has all, there's already been a long creep of privatization and corporate control of farming in the Punjab. And these three laws just kind of expedited that process, making it easier. For multinational corporations um, to basically um, exploit and extract both land and the labor of farm workers, and so that is the kind of impetus for this resistance. But also, it is not a coincidence that these farm bills that impact, you know, the entire country and, and farming communities across the country, but that the resistance was really focused in the Punjab, because the Punjab has a long history of opposition to the Indian state. Punjab at its very founding, uh, or rather its founding in the Indian state was marked by partition. Uh, So Punjab has been marked by one of the bloodiest human displacements in human history already, which was the imposition of the colonially imposed border between India and Pakistan that fractured the Punjab into, into two different regions and really violently forced people on two sides of this artificial border. So it's always been in a struggled relationship to the Indian state, what it's what it calls the center. And then, you know, decades, decades on the Green Revolution, which was really an industrialized revolution um, that brought in capitalist control and industrial control of the farming sector, that kind of industrial World Bank funded, neoliberal experiment at a global level was was pioneered. In the Punjab. So Punjab has, you know, the impacts of that are what we often hear about in the news, you know, farmer suicides, a substance use um, crisis, the crisis of landlessness that all kind of flowed from uh, the, the failed and flawed experiment of the Green Revolution. And then in the 1980s, you know, there was a, a massive counterinsurgency and anti-terror campaign and genocidal campaign against the Sikh community. Um, in India as a result of the assassination of then Prime Minister Indira Gandhi. And so, you know, all of these kind of overlapping forces are the contextual kind of factors that have fueled the current struggle against farm bills. And then, um, the other, uh, really important context is that the Punjab has one of the largest Dalit communities in India. Um, Dalit communities being caste-oppressed communities who are more, more likely uh than caste-privileged communities to be impacted by landlessness and to actually be farm workers and not farm owners. And so one piece of um one kind of one piece of important solidarity uh or one important aspect of solidarity that's been built in the current movement is uh the kind of solidarities, as tenuous as they are and as troubled as they are between farm owning and farm working classes and farm owning and cla- and farm owning and farm working castes and farm owning and farm working communities. So all of these are, I think, um, some of the most important aspects of of this resistance. And really just the direct action that has been imbued, both the organization and the direct action, and just the fearlessness that has been imbued throughout this resistance, um, facing down state violence again in the middle of winter, and remaining undeterred. Um, and, you know, just suffering so many deaths There the deaths are over 120 farmer deaths in the past two months alone from various causes. Um, and so I, I thank you for bringing this up, because it's certainly been close to home and close to my heart in many ways.
11: Here are some of the issues. The Modi government is like the Trump government and is like the Bolsonaro government in Brazil. It has turned to nationalism. Its whole approach has been to divert the public's attention from the deteriorating economy and the fact that in a deteriorating economy more and more of scarce resources are going to the super rich at the top, and the burden of the decline is shifted on to the mass of people. This is so dangerous for the capitalist system, this kind of separation, division in society, that it becomes very urgent to focus the mass of people's upset about what's happening to them on something other than the economic system. So uh, Mr. Trump got us angry at immigrants. Mr. Trump got us angry at foreign trading partners like China or Europe or Mexico or Canada, whoever he could think of, the foreigner, the other, the immigrant, in hopes of getting people's, um, how shall I put it politely, baser instincts to focus them elsewhere. That's what the uh, white supremacy was was about. That's what the misogyny was about. In India, it's a different country, so they played their nationalism <coughs> Excuse me, a little differently. There, the thing to rev up, which Mr. Modi did, was the antipathy between the Hindu majority and the Muslim uh, minority, to ri- revive all of those terrible parts of the history of that area. Uh, of the British colonial regime, playing the Hindu people against the Muslim people, and all of that. So he became a Hindu nationalist, attacking Muslims, looking the other way, becoming famous because he condoned uh, unspeakable crimes against the Islamic uh, minority. So he could get people all excited about their religious differences, So they don't ask why their economic system is in such trouble. Mr. Bolsonaro does it with his antics, his militarism, his saber-rattling in Latin America, and his copycat uh, approach to COVID uh, the way he does with Trump. So it is very important that at least in one of these countries, in this case India, The mass of people saw through it, weren't distracted, and mobilized enough to produce a general strike of 250 million people against the economic policies of the Modi government. That was made crystal clear. There were demands as part of this strike for pensions for people that don't have them, approving pensions for those who do have them, uh, cash support during the COVID, which is desperately uh, bad in India, Uh, all kinds of demands on the government to do what it isn't doing and should be for the mass of people, at the same time undoing the quote-unquote reforms. By the way, nowadays the word reform has become the go-to terminology to disguise a reduction in support for people. You dare not say what you're doing. So it's all about reform. But nobody in India was fooled. So the reason it's historic is that this has rarely been done in India. It has rarely been possible to get all the unions together. It has rarely been possible to get all the farmers together. It has been rarely impossible to get the two groups together and to focus them against a sitting government that has tried everything it could think of to prevent this, including really ugly police repression, it did not work. And and what is being done in India, is it may not be covered, but awareness of it will seep into Brazil, it will seep into other countries, the few that have gone in this direction. And even here in the United States, where the coverage was stunning by its silence, Uh, it's going to be standing there as a kind of notion for the working class in the United States to ask itself an an obvious question. We've just had four years of among the worst anti-labor, anti-working class governments in our history, and the labor movement mounted no opposition. The labor movement in the United States was, itself so divided by the Trump administration. So many were distracted into being angry at immigrants or China or something else that we weren't able to do what the Indians have now shown us how to do. And I think that lesson will not be lost on Americans either.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with the Working Life podcast giving four talking points in favor of the fight for 15. Off Kilter in two parts discussed the proposed Raise the Wage Act. Pitchfork Economics explained why even if the unreliable CBO scoring of the Raise the Wage Act were correct, it would still be a net win for workers. Why is this happening? With Chris Hayes explained the origins of the Indian farmer protests. Democracy Now! examined the disaster capitalism at play in India, the Red Nation podcast spoke to the passion behind the protests, and the Zero Hour had on Professor Richard Wolf who highlighted the nationalistic tactics being used in India to distract away from the failures of capitalism. That's what everyone heard, but members also got bonus clips from First Pitchfork Economics explaining in a very nerdy, very detailed way why the CBO scoring of the Raise the Wage Act is misrepresenting the likely impact the bill would have, and the Working Life podcast discuss the movement to organize a union within Amazon. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes and are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you want to make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support, or request a financial membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information and every request is granted no questions asked now we are foregoing voicemails for today to hear the result of the new game experiment i launched last week the target of the game is to write a misleading but true headline so i gave three stories just plain vanilla stories without manipulated headlines, and we're going to hear some of the submitted misleading headlines that came in. The first story was about the Biden administration taking aim, just as Obama did, at closing the the, uh, Guantanamo Bay prison. Some prisoners have now been there for 20 years, having never been charged with a crime, but closing the prison still wouldn't necessarily mean releasing any of those prisoners, just moving them to somewhere else. So our first misleading headline is from John.
12: Biden administration to free 9-11 terrorist from Guantanamo.
0: John's really keeping it classic with that one. Technically, I would say that this may slip past misleading into downright false, unless a publication trying to get away with that headline wanted to make the argument that they're Technically, being freed from Guantanamo. They're not in Guantanamo anymore. They just happen to be on a transport headed to a new prison. The second story I suggested was about the administration looking to remove work requirements from welfare programs. So let's hear this headline from Zach the Theologian
12: Socialist Biden plummets country further into deficit by handing out your money to the lazy.
0: Again, this one may have tipped over from wildly misleading into actually factually inaccurate. I, I think it is fair to say that Biden is factually not a socialist, but you can totally imagine a publication arguing that no, 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 it was just flowery language they were using to make a point. It's not that. We think he's actually a card-carrying socialist, but he's supporting a program that is socialized, and anyone who supports a program like that is a socialist, so he is. Or they could go with the, the classic that came up in the 2011 retrospective episode. This headline was not intended to be a factual statement. Other than that minor quibble, though— This hits on so many great points. These are all excellent misinformation strategies. So the first is extreme language, just obviously going for the emotion from beginning to end. Uh, Deficit scaring. I mean, this is not so much a tactic, but a specific talking point that is brought up over and over again. And it is completely misleading. So you you could call it misrepresenting data or, or, you know, twisting data, something along those lines, because the reality is that it is a fraction of a fraction of the budget. So to call it plummeting into deficit and so forth is, is obviously misleading. Referring to it as your money is a great way to reinforce ideological ideas about the nature of taxes. And then, of course, calling the recipients lazy, Excellent demagoguery, scapegoating, all intended to anger the reader. So just really all throughout, excellent work. Our third story was about changes to the rules about asylum seekers being allowed across the border from Mexico, and I got this headline from Dan.
12: Biden's plan to release. Over 25,000 migrants concerns Texas border residents. One resident interviewed says these people aren't being properly vetted for safety.
0: And now this one's tricky. It uses a manipulation tactic I didn't even mention. This one is called featuring extreme or uninformed voices. You know, why ask an expert when you could get an unhinged opinion from an uninformed person who fits your narrative. It's a great lesson in being aware of the sources a piece of reporting is relying on. And related to the uninformed or extreme perspective is the pseudo-expert. So this is when someone is interviewed and is referred to as an expert, but they don't actually have a track record on the subject, and so that's a, a real nefarious bit of misleading. Lastly, this headline came in from Corey, and it actually addresses all three of the stories.
12: As Americans suffer, Biden shifts focus to end of Guantanamo Bay and welfare requirements. The new administration aims to fulfill promise of relocating 9-11 terrorist collaborators, allow previously barred foreigners to enter U.S., and remove welfare work requirements.
0: Again, this one is subtly quite genius, I think, and and there's a lot to pick through. So the whole framing of as Americans suffer is, I, frankly, it's quite a masterstroke. It's clearly true that Americans are suffering, but it's also completely irrelevant. It's also true that the administration is putting a huge focus on relieving that suffering. So in this case, that tactic would be called shiny object distraction when a media outlet wants to specifically distract from one story and shift attention. So pretending that one or more stories is distracting from a major story like American Suffering is actually a great way to distract from the major story. The major story could be The Biden administration is doing lots of various things to try to relieve suffering. But if you frame it as, but look over here, look at these things you don't like, then the implication, which doesn't have to be true, and they don't have to say it explicitly, is Biden is ignoring all the suffering so that he can do these things that are going to make you angry. That's why it's a masterstroke. Then You know, classic referring to 9/11 terrorist collaborators. You know, it's inflammatory language, which is you know great to make people angry, but it specifically conveniently cuts out all of the non-9/11 terrorist collaborators who are also stuck at Guantanamo, and 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 so just focusing on a a narrow slice and and, uh, ignoring the rest is is a you know classic framing. And then this one I really liked. This this one's the subtle one allowed previously barred foreigners to enter the U.S. And this is playing on people's status quo bias. People tend to think that if a rule is in place, then it should be in place. If people are barred from entering, it's probably because they should be barred from entering, and there's probably a really good reason for it. So that framing is entirely accurate and yet completely misleading. It it creates this idea in people's minds like, well, these people were barred and now they're coming. And it is entirely in the scare people type of framing. So again, entirely accurate yet completely misleading. And that is the real art of this game. So, all those headlines are fake, you know, they were sent in by listeners, this is just a game we're playing to, to learn the tactics at play here, but this week I came across a really great example of a totally true yet entirely misleading headline in real life. So this is about the ongoing Jeffrey Epstein story, and this particular story is about how a 60 Minutes producer just wrote a book, or it just came out, or it's being teased, and it's claiming... That this producer spoke to Ghislaine Maxwell, friend of Jeffrey Epstein, about finding tapes of Trump having sex with underage girls. And this was happening during the 2016 election. The producer was saying, like, look, this guy might become president. That would be terrible. We have to get this story out. And Ghislaine Maxwell, who did not want Trump to become president, according to this book still refused to help find the tapes. She also said she didn't know where they were, but she refused to help find them because then the media, she said, knowing how the media works, would also have to find and play the tapes of Bill Clinton in the same scenario, which she feared would hurt Hillary Clinton's chances in the election more than Trump's. She thought, well, Clinton's ahead, Trump's behind, this story doesn't need to come out. The takeaway is that the clear implication is that there exist tapes of both men in Jeffrey Epstein's collection. So that's the story. And here's one relatively reasonable headline. Ghislaine Maxwell, quote, Admitted Epstein had secret tapes of Trump and Bill Clinton, unquote. But here's one that is both true to the story and yet entirely misleading, Report Epstein, Madam, wouldn't help find tapes of Bill Clinton because it would hurt Hillary's 2016 run. The end. <laughs> I, I mean, classic, just carefully carving out the information you don't want to share, only shouting from the rooftops the information you do want to get out there. Both accusations are inflammatory, but to only present one of them. There is no other option than to say you're intentionally seeking to mislead people by only mentioning Bill Clinton and entirely ignoring Trump in the headline. Now, as is often the case with these outlets that have these very misleading headlines, the story will mention Trump so they can say, look, we're a real media organization. We're doing real reporting. We mentioned Trump in in the article. And yet they know that most people don't read past the headline, and that's the angle they want to get across to their readers. So now that you know how to play, I'm going to do another round. Here are some headlines. You can pick one or more of these stories, just as you heard people do today, and write one or more wildly misleading, yet truthful headlines. So here's the first one. U.S. officially rejoins the Paris Climate Accord. Of course, that's been in the works for a while, but Now it's official. The second is South Carolina governor signs bill banning abortion of fetus after heartbeat is detected. And the third is Biden approves major disaster declaration for Texas. Write wildly misleading yet true headlines for one or more of those stories. And keep in mind, the misleading angle doesn't have to be right wing. It may be harder to get yourself into the mindset, but if you really want to stretch yourself a little bit, you can try to figure out a way to make a misleading left-wing headline that is trying to mislead people to the left while still being true. Again, some good disinformation techniques you may want to employ. Mischaracterization or twisting or cherry-picking of facts. Clickbait headlines. Manipulation of data or statistics, appeals to emotion, stoking polarization, or, as we heard today, featuring extreme voices, or shiny object distraction, all those are great. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202 999 3991 or by emailing me to j at bestoftheleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets. Activism segments, graphic design, webmastering, and so on. And thanks to all those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleftcom support, as that is absolutely how the program survives. And now everyone can support the show and earn rewards by telling everyone you know about it using our referromatic program. If you refer just five friends, you get our amazing and super secret best-of-left artwork for your uh, smartphone or tablet. Everyone who has seen it uh, can't stop raving about it.